Hi, I'm Bill Crystal. I'm very pleased to introduce or reintroduce the conversation I had in 2015 with Don Kagan, the great Yale professor and historian of classical Greece who passed away this summer. Welcome back to Conversations. I'm Bill Crystal, and I'm very pleased to be have with me today Donald Kagan, distinguished longtime professor, I guess now professor emeritus at Yale University. Thanks for thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. That's great to have you. So <coughs> I told someone in Washington I was coming down to coming up to New Haven to do a conversation with you and Donald Kagan. He said, "Oh, I love Don Kagan. He's the war guy." <laughs> <laughs> so you're a great professor, distinguished ancient historian. Uh, yet in Washington, you're known as the war guy. I think that's mostly because of your book, the Origin, terrific book, The Origins of War, but talk about the book and about war. <laughs> well, uh, the, the book is called uh, On the Origins of War and the Preservation of Peace. Uh, yeah, people drop the second half. They do <laughs> tend to drop the second part, and I, but I think that the connection is very crucial and too uh, unf infrequently uh, attended to. And the, the other rest of the title, a little bit of it, uh, is owed to Clausewitz, who wrote his famous essay on war. Right. Well, I'm concerned particularly with the origins, how wars come about, not how you fight them. Uh, but the other thing is uh, uh, I think there's an inherent important linkage between thinking about how wars come and then since most of us find it unfortunate when wars come most of the time, uh, how in fact wars don't come about. Right. And some, in some one sense, how wars can be prevented, uh, that sounds like a bit of a more active and hopeful way of looking at things, or how you can avoid going to war, which is a different thing but has the same outcome. So, talk about <coughs> on, the, on the origin of war and the preservation of well, peace. Well, I, I well, mean... Why did you write it? What, what, what prompted you to do it? You, um, I've always been interested in the general subject, and my, my own... Uh, life's work about Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War naturally leads me to think about war in general and, and of course, the problem. Thucydides is certainly was the first person ever to make a very serious, careful analysis of why a war came about with a kind of a modern degree of sophistication, beyond the modern degree of sophistication, I think, um, which made it... Uh, both of historically serious and uh, worthy of your attention, and with philosophical implications having to do with its place in human events in general, so that the question of why the war came about always seized me, and I taught about it many times. And of course, <clears throat> before I undertook the book on the origins of war, I had written a four-volume history of the Peloponnesian War, so you can see why uh, those thoughts would uh, come together. <clears throat> but uh, the, the rest of the story is that I didn't begin my interest in history in the ancient world. I didn't really know there was an ancient world in any serious way until I was a sophomore in college. It really came quite late <clears throat> to me. But um, I had always been interested in modern European history. And modern European history, of course, is full of war. Yes. And it's always an incredibly dramatic thing, but it's also appeals to my uh, feeling that history is most interesting when you try 
to figure out what any sensible person gets interested in when he studies history, which is why do things happen as they do? And, and did they have to happen right. that way? <clears throat> and very, very few things are as helpful for that kind of thinking as the outbreak of a war or, on rare occasions, the avoidance of a war that seemed to be highly likely. So I was very interested already. I had a hobby almost in reading about the First World War and particularly the origins. And, of course, that's a good one because no war has ever been argued about <clears throat> as right. much as that one. And it is one of the more interesting and difficult and complicated questions compared to many other wars. Anybody who has trouble understanding why the Second World War came about needs a little help. <laughs> but the First World War, it's really worth all the argument that there's been about it. So that had interested me quite a lot. <clears throat> but then again, having lived through the Second World War, <clears throat> uh, I was enormously interested in that. And, and as I read about the ancient world and continued to read about the modern world, I, I was constantly struck with my dissatisfaction about the way these were treated typically by other historians and my feeling that although each was different, uh, there were important similarities, but even the differences were very instructive. And so I thought about the idea of making a comparative study. Um, and the, another thing that attracted me was that people have done some kinds of that sort of stuff before, but they usually have a social science deformation. <clears throat> uh, which was spoken like a historian, right? Quite, <laughs> uh, which, which produces whatever it produces, but not what I was looking for. What does it produce, though? Because it seems to me that's one of the distinctive things for me as a political sort of trained in political science. Yeah. You, you've been trained in anti-political well, science. Well, that's true. Anti-political science, yeah. political science. It's the best kind, you know. <laughs> but I'm very struck by your historical, I mean, yeah. explain yeah. that. I, I mean, uh, I, I want, maybe, maybe this will help. I think uh, uh, in the introduction to that book, I, I speak about what I think I'm doing. I describe it as comparative narrative history. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my own opinion is the best way to grasp the past, uh, at least for a very long time before you reach a high degree of sophistication, is by telling the story. Right. The, the discipline that comes from having to tell the story and essentially to defend your understanding of what really happened, I think is necessarily prior to any attempt to explain why anything. So I, th I thought I would write uh, a number of narratives whose purpose would be, first of all, to establish what I think happened, and then to go at the question of why did they happen? Did they need to happen? If it, they didn't, whose fault was it that they did? All the questions that your average person who has a general interest in these questions is interested in. And from a political science <laughs> point of view, I would say what struck me reading the book is the you don't, you don't uh, dot this I or cross this T or hit the reader over the head with it, but the contingency, and when you look at it in this narrative way and without a, a presumption or prejudice ahead of time as to this must be the cause or that must be the way wars happen because some social scientists decided it, it's the contingency of events, it seems to me, that leaps out from your pages. It's absolutely true. Uh, e you know, even Thucydides, who was the first and was 
really very, very sophisticated in his uh, attempt to grasp how these things are connected and who tends more than, much more than I do to think that there are sort of broad general right. rules of human behavior which help explain or maybe thoroughly explain why people do what they do. Even he and what made him so great was he understood perfectly well, but these are not hard and fast scientific rules. Right. And the events and the individuals involved in the events can be critical in what happens. So, uh, so those, you did what, five or six wars I, or non-wars, I guess? I did five. I should say, this idea came to me before I ever thought about writing the book. I taught a course yeah, for, God, I don't know, a couple of decades called Historical Studies in the Origins of War. And I studied the five cases that ultimately Your I colleagues used. let you teach outside of your own little part of the department there. They let you teach modern history, even though you're an ancient historian. That was broad-minded of them. Do you, or maybe one, you had so much clout, you just... None of those things. Because <laughs> I started doing that in, in the second semester that I was at Yale. Is that right? So that... <clears throat> no, Yale's history department, at least, is absolutely splendid. Oh, to, to a fault. I, I mean, uh, as most history departments are on the way, what I mean by that is that they essentially let you teach what you want. So if you well, don't have a crazy... That's good and bad, I guess. Yeah, yeah right. The bad thing <laughs> Good is, in your case, though. Yeah. The, ba the bad thing is too often people teach what they know, right. which turns out to be the material of a very recondite... Uh, um, uh, what do you call the little classes that we teach? Uh, Seminar. Seminars. Seminars. <laughs> uh, but rarely lead to anything broader than that. But nonetheless, uh, so that accounts why nobody, nobody cared. I suppose they would have... They wouldn't have cared much if very few people showed up. But it turned out, so if, you, if you order a course that says historical I mean, it's historical studies war, the whole universe turns out. Yeah. You know, I might just say a word about that, how you can be wrong about these things. <clears throat> it was uh, 1970, Vietnam War. Everybody knows war is evil. Everybody knows you mustn't pay any attention to it. You must just stop it. And anytime anybody ever gave a course on war or military history, in all my time at Yale, filled with students who want to know about it. Is that right? And you could be a sure thing, anybody. <laughs> well, it's important in history, you know. <laughs> See, I think so. <laughs> yeah, the outcome does matter, yeah. So you did World War I and World War II, was that And then I did the Second Punic War because I thought it was, again, a very interesting example. But I had a couple of pairs in my mind. The, it seemed to me that the Second Punic War had some interesting elements in common with World War II. And I had always been struck by what seemed to me to be enormously great uh, similarities between events of the uh, Peloponnesian War and World War I. And then, of course, I was enormously interested in a war that didn't happen. Now, that's not too many of these things where you can say, there was gonna be a war, but it didn't happen. But I had lived through it, and so I was much taken with it, and that was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that was attractive because also it was a live subject. Documents were still being turned right. out, or made available, I should say, that weren't available. So it, that rarely happens to a guy who does ancient history. Yeah. And so I thought that was attractive. But it turned out that that also was very illuminating. And so, uh, I did them for different reasons, but they turned out to be the five I would have chosen if I had to choose. And what about the similarities between the Peloponnesian War and World War I on the one hand and 
Punic War and World War II on the other? Well, uh, in the case of the um, First World War, the uh, excuse me, uh, the Peloponnesian War, you have a, a situation in which there is a great power which is has been the dominant power about, uh, and that is Sparta. And then you have a newly emergent power, which is a which is in fact looks like it's practically passing the first one, and is a great threat to its standing and its position in the in the Peloponnesian War. In this First World War, you have a great power that has been the force for peace and the order in, in that world. In the case of Great Britain, and then you have this newly emerging bumptious power threatening those kinds of things. So that, on a very large level, seemed to me to be an interesting similarity. And the other thing about it was <clears throat> that it seemed to me that in the case of the Peloponnesian War, it was a war that came about without either side wanting it to come about. And my feeling was so was World War I, that nobody really wanted that war when the whole game got rolling, <clears throat> but that uh, Various kinds of errors of judgment and conflicts of values uh, produced the one. And I felt that was a, a nice match for that one. In the case of <clears throat> the, uh, the Romans and the Carthaginians in the Second Punic War, you have um, the, what struck me there was, okay, one side beats the other side and beats them quite nicely in the First Punic War. And then they are sufficiently comfortable and sufficiently distracted that they really don't pay attention any longer adequately to what's happening to their former opponent, Carthage in Africa. <clears throat> and they tend to think, I think they tend to think, well, we can handle those guys and they're not so stupid as to tackle us again and that's that. That reminded me of the stretch mm. leading up to World War II, uh, where the victors uh, did everything they could to make believe there was no problem. Right. <laughs> and the defeated country came on with a tremendously um, potent political figure as their leader uh, and tremendous ambitions and so on. So again, that seemed to me to be in a fairly gross way, but in a way that I thought was helpful. How, do you, how does a war come about under those circumstances where somebody surely wasn't averse to war at all, which was Hannibal, <clears throat> who was certainly, nothing could have pleased him more than the notion, by the way, I think what we ought to do is invade Europe, Italy, and destroy those Romans. Nothing was more appealing than that on every ground. And the Romans were, they were not keen to have it, and, and they were unduly confident too, I think they just felt, well, they're, they're not going to be so crazy as to come at us again. And we all learned something about how crazy people can be. Any individuals you came away admiring especially or even more than when you started or surprises on the upside or downside in terms of statesmen, uh, especially, I guess, in the modern cases? Where yes. I, 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 didn't, I didn't get much of a change in the ancient thing. There's yeah. not enough. But <clears throat> I came away... <clears throat> with a greater appreciation of the positive sides of Bismarck. Hmm. Plenty of negatives with Bismarck, 
but he he did have a really good capacity to evaluate what were the pros and cons from a practical point of view in international relations and war and so on and so forth. And so he really did work to prevent war. And in my opinion, with extraordinary success. I mean, it's really very interesting. He, 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 um, he knew that the, uh, the trouble, if it arose, was going to happen in the Balkans. And he knew that it was going to be a war between Austria and Russia if it happened. And it would be very hard for Germany to stay out one way or another if that happened. And so he conducted a very complicated foreign policy that few people understood and really could grasp what he was up to, in which his, his determination was to see that those two states did not come into conflict. And one of the ways he did that was by throwing Germany's weight around, but not in order to increase Germany's power or whatever, but in order to see to it that nobody got to be too ambitious in that territory. <clears throat> and, I th and he succeeded. He, until he was fired in 1890, uh, Germany was the force, not formally allied to Britain, but informally working with Britain because the British wanted the same thing. And was it sustainable? I mean, was it mistakes that didn't continue that policy, or was it somehow just couldn't have been continued once uh, no, I, I am among left? <clears throat> I am among probably a minority who think the war was not inevitable when the trouble started. The trouble yeah. starts when he gets fired. <clears throat> Maybe another way to put it is the trouble starts when William II gets rid of the guy who's been restraining him right. and really starts running German policy. <clears throat> and it becomes a really uh, hard to defend policy from any rational perspective because he wasn't rational about what he wanted. And Thucydides would have understood that better than most. You know, Thucydides has this great <clears throat> insight. I, get, I wish I get people to pay attention. It's very short. <laughs> he has one of his speakers <clears throat> at the beginning of the war say, why do people go to war? Out of fear, honor, and interest. Well, everybody knows interest. Right. That's right. And fear is very credible. Nobody takes honor seriously. <clears throat> and one of the things that, the thing I suppose was the biggest surprise to me in writing that book was how potent honor was and is in the conduct of foreign affairs, which often leads to war. <clears throat> that if, and people say, well, honor, who cares about honor? That's, right. that's something that's another one. Translate honor as in ways that we would understand it today. Use a word like prestige. Yeah. Use a word like shame, which is, the, it's, it's the negative that's most important in the honor issue. It's not so much that you want to acquire honor by victory, it's that you want to avoid the disgrace and the shame that comes if you feel like you lost, yeah. and you can lose in negotiating, and you can lose in war. And so people, and we, it's, I, I, I quote the passages that uh, demonstrate this, Right down to the last minute, people are infinitely more concerned in what they're talking about inside their private circles with the disgrace, with the honor, with the 
the um, besmirching of honor for their country, then they are, nobody's talking about economics. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's, and, and they don't even really talk about power. More than anything that you, than you would imagine, they are concerned with this other thing. I guess national pride is one way we try to capture it a little bit. But sure, but it doesn't quite get it. Right. It doesn't quite get it. it. That sounds like you have, who needs that kind of pride? But shame, disgrace, they will think we are weak. They will think we are cowardly. And not only is that inherently bad, but all the people we rule will think they can push us around. Right. And that, so they're up, they always are thinking about practical consequences of these impressions that are made. So that's good about Bismarck. And, uh, and World War I, I do think, yeah, I think majority, I don't follow this closely, but my sense is a majority of historians, probably influenced by social science perhaps, or by, I don't know, certain trends in his historiography, do want to say that that was a war that uh, individual decisions didn't, you know, somehow didn't make that much difference. It was once Germany was rising and Britain was there. and Totally, the, the evidence is totally against it. Yeah. As I say, Bismarck decided no, and he was successful in preventing it. William, on the other hand, was as concerned about those kinds of things as anything in the world. All he cared about was prestige. All he cared about, and he particularly felt uh, shamed and disgraced personally by Britain's role in the world, because you know they were all they were all related. The kings were all related right. at the time. The, 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 the British were Germans, and the Germans had British. Uh, William's mother was British. Uh, she was a princess, uh, a British princess. So um, he, he was personally irked, to put it very mildly, by the, fact, the way the British treated him. They did not treat him with the respect he thought he personally should have. And he certainly, he identified himself with Germany and Germany with himself. And they certainly, he felt, did not uh, treat Ger uh, Germany with the respect that it deserved. And uh, it focused very interestingly, why could the British do that? There were so few compared to the Germans and the Austrians. And uh, the, uh, the German army was infinitely more potent, they thought, than the British army. It was the fleet. It was the British fleet. And it, indeed, at that moment in history, when, Western Europe, when the Western European countries were spreading all over the world, and most particularly Great Britain, and, so, and their power was a naval, yeah. and their prestige was naval. And so William decided Germany had to have the, a fleet, at the very least, able to challenge the British, and he hoped one that would be even greater than the British. And that was the single activity that was, I would argue, of the many, that drove the British into the position where they became the people not cooperating with Germany, as they had done so much in the past, and with Bismarck, but rather the number, number one stumbling block for the Germans. That's interesting. And World War II, um, do you have any revisionist views of that? Or, uh... My views there are very conventional, but those conventional views are in uh, every day becoming less popular right, right. with the people who count. And I, I, I must say, as I observe American behavior now in the, facing the problems it does face in the world, uh, 
I, I, I cannot believe that the people who were involved in those decisions ever took a decent history course. <laughs> because we know so much about how you go wrong in these kinds of circumstances. The story seems to me to be as clear as it can be. And by the way, to most historians who have written about the subject, uh, and they're going against it. What I'm, what I'm getting at is this. And this is a, a characteristic problem of modern um, liberal societies, <clears throat> starting with the British in their biggest days, uh, and then, of course, the United States coming in later to be the major uh, successor to that. And, and that is the notion that because you are protected by water, from the same dangers that confront most other nations, namely an army is going to come marching in, right. so you have to be alert to that. They imagine that they have a degree of security which is simply an imaginary situation. You can, uh, you can really wonder about the British who are, how few miles is it across the channel? Yeah, Practically, well, the people do swim it. Yeah, right. So there's that, but they, they acted as though the fact that they had that water and they had a fleet that was the best fleet and that ought to be successful in a war, that that would take care of all their problems. And of course, uh, after the, <clears throat> the First World War, the United States with this great ocean had always, not, they never considered the possibility since the British went away of uh, European power coming here so that, th and they had a, they didn't even think they needed a big navy much of the time. They were so confident about right. this situation. So what they did was to make believe that these things that were so troubling in Europe were not their problem, and they didn't need to worry about it. And they made up a story, which had been made up by, originally by British pacifists, that in fact there was no need to fight the First World War. Right. And that was simply... Uh, a wicked action taken by people with wicked motives and that... Munitions uh, makers and... Right, munitions right. makers and all that stuff. So that the thing to do if you want to avoid war is do not become involved with anything outside the Western Hemisphere. They usually didn't worry about Asia. It never seemed, didn't seem to occur to them that <clears throat> the Japanese would right. be a problem. But So it was all about that. Well, and of course the world simply didn't work that way anymore. The United States had become a world power. The United States economy, its uh, security, were all tied up chiefly in the European area. So it would make a very considerable difference to the United States if Europe went into the wrong direction. But Americans just didn't want to know about that. Was it, was it they didn't want to know, or how much of it was that? Under, and then the wishful thinking was just a kind of uh, the utopianism about world peace and modern commercial yes, nations I mean, wouldn't go to war. Is that just a, a kind of a rationalization for the... It, you, you, I think they're different people, different stories. For some people, it was uh, ignorance and foolishness. <clears throat> Never underestimate the enormous power and extent of ignorance and foolishness. And most people didn't know how the First World War came about. And they were immediately fed 
a thoroughly false picture of it, which whose message really was it came about by people not minding their own business. Right. And so the average man who didn't know better thought, fine, because then we don't need an army, and then we don't need to pay for it, and we really don't need as much of a navy as we thought, so let's reduce it, uh, and so on. And I think so we shouldn't, we shouldn't fail to appreciate the sort of mental and cultural element that shapes what's going on. And I don't think our national leaders are necessarily free from those things. Uh, they're usually not as ignorant as the average man, but they're not so terribly far away in many cases. And I think that the, uh, the educational system, insofar as it plays any role in anything, I really have never had a clear idea of how people are affected in their ideas about the world in which they live by what they learn in school courses. I really don't know how important that is. Uh, some, I think it's become more important because we are more schooled right. now than we used to be. We are schooled longer than we used to be. And never has there been so much agreement uh, on, a absurd, uh, on absurd grounds about history insofar as history is taught at all in our schools. But there is a, a, um, a, a very common widespread message sent out, which I believe uh, was, there was also a very pretty widespread comment, uh, um, point of view after the First World War, which was the anti-war view, the view that wars come about by evil or by mistake, and you shouldn't get involved in them. Whereas, you know, a careful study of the start of the First World War might well have been a, a warning signal about what was happening in Europe. I mean, I, just two, two, two little, two short final questions on this. I, I, um, I, mean, I like to quote Churchill, so I admire Churchill. I don't think it's, I think it is somewhat analogous to the 30s now, but of course, uh, friends of mine on the left say, oh, there you go, quoting Churchill again. It's not the 30s. The more relevant lesson is Vietnam, or maybe the Iraq War, if you want to be really contemporary. And there we overreached. We got involved in something we didn't have to uh, get involved in. The problem is American uh, overambition, not American withdrawal or, or wishfulness about uh, uh, not having to get involved in the war. So, Yeah, well, I mean, people, you do hear people saying that all the time, and every day they sound more and more foolish. Right. <clears throat> because, I mean, it seems like all you have to do is say the Iraq War, and that means, well, you don't go to war because that war was a failure and it was a mistake, and the only thing that was wrong was that we got involved in it. Well, the fact of the matter is, we succeeded in the Iraq War. The, the, uh, the people who were, I mean, the guy who was running, the dictator who was running the place was gone. There was a government that was popularly elected. There was, uh, nobody was getting shot and nobody was getting killed. And that, the hard part of the fighting was over. We are in the spot we're in now. This, I say this with no hesitation at all as a consequence of the President of the United States subsequently saying, we're not going to have anything more to do with it. After you win the war, you decide to lose it yeah. in that way. So, I mean, I think there's no excuse. This is just, I, I, I really think this is just special pleading by people who have a particular picture of the world and are not interested in the facts, which are very simple and obvious to see. Uh, and it, 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 Afghanistan is more complicated and so on, but 
they're not talking about Afghanistan yet. Right. <laughs> so much, it just it's clear enough we lost some troops, so it was a terrible thing. Right. But the fact of the matter is that that area, which was threatening to become very, very dangerous, as it is again now becoming, was cooled down yeah. by the American intervention. What, and the 21st century is not going to be, I take it, based on your reading of history, a century of perpetual peace, or where we leave behind these 20th century, you have Secretary Kerry likes this formulation, you know, this isn't appropriate, for, again, how does he say it, this isn't appropriate or tolerable in the 21st century, as if these terrible things happened in past centuries, but we're gonna, the world's gonna change well, in the 21st century. Every day, he looks even more foolish than he was when he made that statement, because uh, we have war all over the place, Re real hard fighting wars in places that matter enormously to us. Even the people who run our policy repeatedly talk about the importance of these areas and then act as though they're not important. But in general, you, I think you're a disbeliever in Kant's perpetual peace or in any kind of... Uh, Kant was a disbeliever in perpetual peace. Well, that's an interesting, peace. that's a deep point, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I, everyone forgets that, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, of course, anybody who has examined the history of the world, but let's keep, let's pay our attention chiefly to the world of the modern world, uh, knows that war is perpetual so far. Uh, and, and that war right now is more prominent an element in our lives in this world than it has been since World War II, I think. Yeah, that's an amazing. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, only if you are determined to ignore the evidence can you come to that conclusion. There is war right now. There's every reason to think it will spread. Everything I see, but also in any study of the past, suggests that it will not stop being that way until something big happens to stop it. These things don't just go away. When they are this prominent, and not just a mere local skirmish, then something serious has to be done to stop the forces that require war. But you're not, but you're, the book also shows that peace can be preserved or achieved. And yeah, and that's the other thing that is so discouraging to me. <clears throat> We've just had such a fascinating course in this subject, you, could, you should begin the course, in my opinion, in, let's say, 1890, uh, when the Kaiser comes to, the, to his own power in Germany. And then Germany becomes the stormy petrol that stirs up all the latent stuff. That's World War I. Next, everybody goes to sleep again into our 19th century mode, okay? And the consequence of that is Hitler and the Japanese uh, Empire and World War II. The worst war the world has ever seen. Certainly the two of them, I can't think of any match for them in terms of loss of life uh, in all of history. We, we just ordered, I mean, we know it. Some of us have lived through part of it. So that, th that is what's before us. But, and then most particularly, and this is hardest to get across because there's so much propaganda flying around about it. But start in 1945 right. and go down uh, 70 years. And you have an extraordinary stretch of time in which there are not really any great wars at all. 
there is an enormous outburst of prosperity in the world as a whole. There is a, um, what was it? Oh yes, uh, if if you think this is a good thing, and I do, uh, a tremendous growth in popular government, such as the world has never seen, and not only this time in the West. So that you would, I would have to regard it as the most positive, fruitful period of international relations and uh, internal positive developments that I can think of in the history of the human race. Now, was that just luck, dumb luck? If you ask yourself, what are the characteristics of the world in which that arose and, and was permitted to grow? And the answer was, it was the victory in the Second World War, first of all, of the anti-fascist and anti-imperialist forces who were themselves, I mean, I, you have to be careful because a big chunk of them were the Soviet Union. Right. And you have to face the fact they were critical in that victory. But they were not the, the state that, after the war especially, had the greatest impact on what was happening in the world. It had a very serious impact, but it was largely negative. Its tendency was very old-fashioned territorial imperialism. Right. And it would, not have, it, it would not have ever sort of calmly gone away. Either they would have made their empire firm and we would have old-fashioned despotism that the world is used to, uh, or they would have what, what did happen, which is they would fall apart. And, and then for a brief period of time, then popular government would be the force that was coming on. Well, that came about because the United States chiefly and its allies undertook to handle the world a different way. They judged that all of the things that mattered to us were necessarily connected to what happened to the rest of the world. And that if we wanted those things to move in a positive direction rather than a negative one, we had to be engaged, and that one form of our engagement has to be overwhelming military strength. <clears throat> I always like to use this because I, my, my foreign policy formula. You, you guys have all been in places where you see a sign up there. It says, don't even think of parking here. <laughs> right. I think the policy we had during the successful phase of it was, don't even think of using force to bring about your desires. And it worked because people believed, they knew we had the force, and they believed we would use it. And both of those elements are critical, in my view, to preserving a peace that exists. So why did you become an ancient historian? Why, why the classics? Why Thucydides? Well, it's a, it's a purely biographical story with no deep philosophical context. I was, uh, <clears throat> I'd always liked history. And when I was a kid, I just read history for fun. <clears throat> and, uh, but I knew nothing at all about the ancient world. We, we were never, we, somehow we were never taught it in school. Hmm. And so <clears throat> I just never had anything to do with it. Uh, most of my historical interests, strangely enough, not, I don't know, strangely enough or not, but not so much in America. I was very interested in modern European history, which has always stayed with me, but that was... That's what I read. That's the fun I had. 
And um, so now I, next moment in my life was in, in high school. I want to give a plug to Thomas Jefferson High School in Brooklyn in New York, where I had the good fortune to have a uh, wonderful history teacher, the only wonderful history teacher I ever had uh, up so, until that right? college. Uh, and uh, Where is Thomas Jefferson High School in Brooklyn? East New York. East New York. Maybe the worst neighborhood in Brooklyn now. Still, even though every other neighborhood in Brooklyn has been gentrified, you think East New York is hanging in there? Oh, <laughs> yes. It's, it's bad. But it was, it was actually, I, I actually grew up in the Brownsville section of Brooklyn, which was been below East New York in those days. <clears throat> but uh, East New York is pretty sad now. However, it was a very nice a local high school, and he was a, r- a remarkably good teacher. And what was remarkably good, he was the first real sort of spoke uh, like a historian, the first one I ever met. He just didn't tell you stories and ask you to remember what was in the clauses and stuff like that. <clears throat> he asked questions, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and he undertook to answer them or to have you participate in the answering of them. And <clears throat> that really sharpened up my sense that what I wanted to be <clears throat> was a history teacher. <clears throat> it never occurred to me to be a professor because I didn't even know what that was. Nobody in my family had ever been to college, and so it just wasn't a world that existed for me. <clears throat> but when I graduated and went to Brooklyn College, uh, it was with the intention of becoming a history major. And there was certain lot in those days there were required courses, right. would you believe? So most of the first year was spent with required courses of one kind or another. A couple of them were history courses, but they were pretty routine. <clears throat> and now I had to make it for the first time. I had to choose courses for myself in the sophomore year. Uh, what do you call them? Uh, electives? Or, electives. Yeah, right. <clears throat> and uh, uh, so I, I thought, oh yes, and I, uh, to be a school teacher, high school history teacher in New York in those days, I don't know what it's like now, but you, <clears throat> they had this very quaint idea that you ought to know a lot of history. <laughs> and so they had uh, a set of courses that you needed to take to, to qualify for a license if you ever got there. And so the first one was ancient history. And then they had, but you didn't have to take them in sequence. But being unimaginative about it all, I thought, why not start at the beginning? So I asked my savvy senior friends and said, is that all right? And uh, <laughs> they said, oh, yeah, ancient history is fine, but wait until you are a senior because she will have retired by then. And they were referring to the only ancient history teacher there was at Brooklyn College in those days, Meta Elizabeth Schutz, a maiden lady from the state of Maine. And I never saw anything like her. And she totally changed my life. Uh, would you like to hear a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Sure, sure, sure. So when are we? When is this? 19- this is uh, 1950, uh, 51. So um, it wasn't a lecture. And it was not a seminar. I guess what you would have called it was a recitation. There might have been anywhere from, depending on how many kids turned up, 10 to 25 students sitting in their chairs in rows and the professor up sitting at her desk. And she would give us an assignment for the day to read. And then she would come in and she would ask questions. But she never asked questions generally of the class. She would say, Mr. Crystal, 
And then she would ask you a question. And you, fairly nervous, would give her an answer. Now, she would correct any factual error you made. <clears throat> she would correct any error of pronunciation that mm. you were engaged in or any conceivable shortcoming of per perfection whatsoever. And not in a particularly pleasant way. <laughs> so I thought, Jesus, what is this? Well, as it turned out, she went through the class for, I think it must have been almost two weeks, and she never got to me. But every day, I was angrier and angrier at what she was doing, and I said, she is not gonna get me. And I prepared for that course, <laughs> like for no other course in my life. <clears throat> and finally, she got around to me, and she said, uh, Ms. Kagan, and she asked me a question. I don't remember what the question was. But I know I spat out the answer in the shortest possible manner possible. I mean, the fewest words conceivable. And I was as certain as I could be that it simply had no flaws. And she said, yes. And she moved on to the next guy. Oh, wow. And then it all sort of dawned on me that all she wanted for us to get it right. Right, right. <laughs> but she insisted that we do. And of course, what, what uh, was behind it all was something that I, I believe is really very nice. You know, Brooklyn College in those days <clears throat> was a, very much a poor man's college. Probably still is. And it was this New York City right, college. The, the, um, the tuition fee was exactly the amount I could afford. Nothing. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, we had to pay a $10 a, a semester library fee. That was the totality. Wow. But that's what most of us could afford. And the other thing about it was that most of us were working class children or petty bourgeoisie, but nothing much above that. And uh, um, for us, we, uh, and it was very hard to get in. I don't know if this is totally true, but they were telling us this story in those days. It was more difficult to be admitted in terms of academic qualifications to Brooklyn College than to Harvard. Hmm. I do believe it, because wow. those were the days of the gentlemen see at Yale and Harvard right, and places right. like that. It was nothing like that at Brooklyn College. So here were all these kids, many of them, by the way, either foreign-born or their parents were foreign-born, so that English wasn't necessarily the language that was spoken at home. Uh, but they were all really quite bright and tremendously motivated. This, this was the, the biggest thing in their world. But more than that, from the time their talents were discovered, which would have been when they were very young in their families, they were lionized. <laughs> we all thought, whether we said so or not, that we were pretty nifty mm -hmm. because everybody had always told us how nifty we were. <clears throat> and she knew how we were in that respect, but she also knew all the ways in which we fell short. All the, the, the imperfections of our language, the, uh, our, all kind, our habits, our interests, and so she was determined to make us aware of all of them and to see to it that we cease to be inadequate in those ways. So I made 
such a story of it because I thought it was educationally one of the most amazing experiences I ever had. And I often wondered, what if she had been uh, an expert in African history? Would I be an African historian today? I don't know. <laughs> so, but you also presumably decided the subject matter was pretty fascinating. Well, that's the rest of it. I, I really became, I, be, I was just as interested as the Rome, in the Romans as I was in the Greeks in those days. But over a sh pretty short time, the Greeks began to fascinate me a lot. And so now it, I think it was not just accidental. I think what I saw in the story of the ancient Greeks really appealed to me. And you then studied, obviously, Greek at some point. So you didn't have the languages at this point when you were had, in college. The only language I had was that I had the, uh, the two-year French medal in high school. That was it. <laughs> and so then you took Greek and Latin. And but no, there's it. a story that goes with that, too, because I, I'm so pleased to have a chance to pass on the amazing place that Brooklyn College, and I'm sure City College and the others were like in those days. <clears throat> Here I was in the middle of my sophomore year, Never took Latin, never took Greek. But if you want to be admitted to graduate school in ancient history, you needed to have Latin and Greek. Right. And I only had five, four and a half semesters to go. What to do? <clears throat> well, the classics department at Brooklyn College in those days was very uh, friendly to any students that uh, were interested in them. And so I went to see a professor who had taught me a course in my freshman year. She didn't know who I was. She wasn't a particularly great teacher. She's the only one I knew in classics. She was a, must have been in her 60s and she was not very well physically. But I went and I asked her, I said, can you tell me how, how can I make the greatest progress as quickly as I can in these ways? And she said, after a little while, she said, she had an apartment right next to Brooklyn College. And she said to me, if you will come to my apartment at 8 a.m. every weekday, I will teach you Latin. And there was a course that they had for beginning Latin one year, and then you would be presumably ready to go into Latin texts of the literary kind and so on. And we completed that one year in the remaining um, months of wow. that year, thanks to she didn't get a nickel. She didn't get for, paid for this at all. Nothing. She just did it out of the That's an amazing commitment. Story. Just an amazing story. And then the next semester, I began Greek and Latin courses, and the rest is history. And you went to grad school? Went to grad school at Brown for a master's degree. I, I would have liked to stay, but they didn't have a PhD in ancient history. Oh. <clears throat> so from there, I uh, went to... Uh, Ohio State, and, uh, and, and that was stupid because I didn't know anything about Ohio State. I didn't know anything about the teachers there or anything, but in those days, nobody told you. Right, you but they just, offered you a scholarship or something? And you well, sure, to... but other folks offered me scholarships too, uh, but anyway, of course, it's so much better to be lucky than smart, yeah. and it turned out that there was a wonderful teacher of ancient history there, magnificent, yeah. and I, there were some very, very good teachers in other fields of history, yeah. and I really feel very uh, indebted to my education at Ohio State, which I really think was better than I deserved. <clears throat> and Thucydides, who was, became your great object of study yeah. and the subject of your four-volume work, and um, on, uh, 
how, did you always love him, or did you do you remember how you first encountered him, or did was he a late uh, interest? You know, or? You, you start reading uh, Thucydides uh, even in the freshman year. You read chunks of him in the uh, classical civilization course that was required. Didn't mean much to me. And then I had a course in Greek history with Professor Schutz, and we certainly read some Thucydides there. And I developed pretty good appreciation of him, but I was still pretty raw and pretty ignorant, and was, it was no great thing. Right. <clears throat> but I, I, and then I went to uh, Ohio State. I didn't, oh yes, I, I must have done Thucydides in Greek at Brown, but I was mostly reading Greek is what I was really doing. <clears throat> so when I go to Ohio State, and Professor McDonald was my man at Ohio State, a wonderful teacher, a person of great education and learning and, and a warm human being. <clears throat> Um, I th we were required to read the whole of Thucydides, and we talked about him some, and I now became really quite interested in him, but not committed in any way. <clears throat> and then, so now I'm in graduate still school, and I have to write a dissertation. <clears throat> and I was hunting around for <clears throat> a topic, and it wouldn't have occurred to me to write on one that was Thucydidean, because I figured like everybody else figured, it's all been done. Right. It's all been said. You gotta go looking for something more uh, recondite. <clears throat> okay, so I finally ended up, I, what I thought I'd do in my simple-minded ways, I start where Thucydides quits. And the next narrative history available after Thucydides runs out is Xenophon, <clears throat> a very unexciting Athenian military historian and other things, <clears throat> and see, see if anything turns up. So I read through Xenophon, and, and finally I came to a story that interested and puzzled me. The, in the town of Corinth in 395, <clears throat> well, no, I, the war started in 395. There's something called the Corinthian War, and it was all around Corinth. But I, I think in the year 392, <clears throat> there was a civil war that broke out in Corinth, and it involved oligarchs on one side, Democrats on the other, which was characteristic of the time. <clears throat> but there was some other bunch of folks running around that it was, I couldn't identify. So I read all the secondary sources I could, <clears throat> and every, they all had it different. They had, some people had Democrats here, and oligarchs there, and some people had, uh, but there were only two. There were always only two. There were oligarchs and Democrats. You had to decide who was who. And it still left something not working. And so one day, it just hit me. I don't know how. Uh, I realized, oh, the problem is there aren't two. There were three. <laughs> and so finally, I ended up arguing that there was indeed uh, a Democratic faction. And there was indeed an old oligarchic faction. <clears throat> but there was also something that had sprung up in more recent times that was something between the two. And they had a different angle and so on. So I thought, great, I think I'm going to write a history of Corinthian politics <clears throat> from the first time we can do that, which is 421 BC, uh, down to where it runs out. And so that was my dissertation. <clears throat> but 
421, that's Thucydides territory. And so I began to now have to wrestle with Thucydides with the intention of understanding what happened and what does Thucydides say about what happened. And I I suppose the peculiar thing, I wouldn't say peculiar, but the characteristic thing about my uh, dealings with Thucydides that make me slightly different from most people who have dealt with him is that I have... I have the greatest admiration for him and won't, can't possibly say enough things that suggest how wonderful the historian he was. But he was a human being. And what people have not sufficiently noticed was that not only was he a contemporary and the war was taking place in and around his city, but he was an important player. Right. He was a general. And he played a very significant role. He got one particular assignment. He, tell, he writes about that. And it was determined, he failed to do what he was supposed to do. His job was to protect, he was the naval commander up there. He was to protect <clears throat> the Athenian ally who was up the river from where he was. <clears throat> and when the Spartans sent an uh, invading force in there, he wasn't there. And the Athenian people found him guilty, and they exiled him from the city. Thank God, because he could not have written the history he wrote if if he were in Athens, because he went off, and he was able to talk to people on both sides, and all of that was true. But my, my point was people were treating Thucydides as though he were God's truth. You find out what Thucydides says, and now you start concerning yourself with other things. And I realized, wait a minute. It's as though all we had as a history of the First World War were Winston Churchill's account of that war. Now, Winston Churchill is a great, great man and fundamentally truthful, but he was deep into everything. And... There's plenty of argument about whether Churchill was right about this, that, the other thing, and what his angle was. I said, it's got to be the same with Thucydides. <clears throat> and so that's when my, <clears throat> my deep interest in coming to understand Thucydides and the war he wrote about. And did you conceive your four-volume work at, at an early age? And no. No. I, did, I, I graduated and uh, went off and lucky enough, well, I went off and won a Fulbright, which was... Uh, tremendously valuable because then I could spend a year in Greece and see the place for the first time and made a big difference. <clears throat> but so I was you'd also... Never, you'd never been... I had never been to Greece. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and then I got very lucky and I got a job and I began teaching at Penn State for a year and then uh, before I was there for a few months, I was offered a job at uh, uh, Cornell <clears throat> and spent the next nine years there. Uh, and I don't remember how, let's see, when did I do this? 19, I guess I started in 1966 when I had been at Cornell for five or six years. <clears throat> and I, I thought it was time for me to try to tackle a, a new kind of a book. And I decided I, I wanted to get at the question. This takes us back to the beginning of our conversation on the origins of the Peloponnesian War. And by this time, I had uh, 
really begun to suspect that there was a great deal to be learned by the comparative thinking about the origins of World War I and the Peloponnesian huh. War. And I, and I just remembered this. <clears throat> there was a, a summer program at Cornell in those days. I don't know. It was called the Telluride Yeah, I program. know many people that went through it, yeah. <clears throat> and each summer they get a couple of faculty guys to teach a seminar to these extremely bright juniors right. from uh, people around the country. <clears throat> so they asked me and a colleague to do it, and I thought, here's the chance. I can, <clears throat> I can uh, try out this stuff. So that seminar was on the origins oh, of well. wars. And uh, meanwhile, I was writing my history of the, of the uh, origins of the Peloponnesian War. So I, I did that. Uh, <clears throat> that was published in 69. And um, I realized when I had finished that that I wasn't going to be satisfied until I had done the same thing for the rest of the war. Wow. And then you, I remember you, the, the was it four volumes came out, and then there was this one volume abridgment that you did, which was a hugely surprising. Maybe I shouldn't say it was surprising, but I thought it was I surprising. was surprised. Bestseller, right? <laughs> that was amazing. It sold very, very well. Yeah, there was a wonderful day, amazing day. <clears throat> the the um, Washington Post, like uh, some other papers, Runs uh, sort of ranks best-selling books each week. Right. I think I've got the numbers right. One day, the Thucydides, the Peloponnesian War book was number seven, and my son Bob's book was number five. And you were you were okay with that? I was better than okay. <laughs> That's with good. That. That's very generous of you as a father. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, I never would have imagined a million years That's that fantastic. anything I wrote would be in the, on that kind of thing. Well, that's a tribute to the American public, I guess, that enough of them care about the well, I mean, Peloponnesian I, War, right? I mean, it turns out that... I'm sure uh, you told the story so well, of course. I mean, yeah. but, uh, no, but it turns out it's amazing how many people around the world are interested in that subject. I, I know that I, some of it was a reaction to the books, but more strikingly, um, at Yale I taught this uh, uh, course that was televised my, my Greek survey course, and uh, <clears throat> it's unbelievable the amount of mail I get from all parts of the world. Uh, and very often, they, they talk about Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War, even within that context. Yeah, there's something about, I mean, the, the war issue is interesting, but maybe there's, also, there's something about the Greeks that people sense a kind of just the amazing character of Greek civilization yeah. and greatness of Greece and that it can't help but appeal to people, you know, once, I th they, I once think they see I, something of it, maybe. I don't know. No, I think that's true. But I also think that, to focus in on Thucydides, I think he has some kind of a special appeal yeah, that, that people get very, the ones who are, get very taken with him, and, and they see the, uh, the relevance of it. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's worth noting, because when I first learned this, I was surprised. Thucydides is studied is a required part of the study at all the military academies, yeah. West Point, uh, Annapolis, uh, several others. And uh, <clears throat> you're constantly, I won't say constantly, but repeatedly hearing important figures who deal with war and politics asserting the central importance 
of Thucydides. General Marshall has a, a very famous uh, quotation, which I can't repeat because I can't remember it, but in which he says, you you got you to gotta know Thucydides if you Is want to know Is that George C. Marshall? We'll have to look yeah. that up. That's great. <clears throat> and he's not the only one of that level who right. has said that. And I've had occasions to uh, lecture uh, sometimes at uh, the military academies, West Point and Annapolis especially, <clears throat> and the there's, there's never, never a shortage of real interest and response from the uh, cadets. Be they study it in their work, and it, it, it livens them up. They, they really become curious about it. Oh, that's great. You were a professor at Yale for 45 years, I think, and a hugely popular and successful one. Um, give us your judgment on the sort of fate of the of, of higher education of the university over, those, over that period. Uh, how has it changed? Has it changed for better? Has it changed for worse? Uh. Well, I think it's, it's, a, it's a hard story, complicated story to tell. <clears throat> because I don't, uh, it hasn't sort of gone the way of disaster, which is the way I see so much of American higher education having gone. It has not sort of evidently and on the surface abandoned its old ways and so forth. And also, I suppose, the reality <clears throat> also is a, a slower change. But if I look at what the situation seemed to me to be like when I arrived and what, I, what happens now, it's, it really does seem very, very different, even, strangely enough, as it remains the same. Right. The, the differences are the ones that are, I think, common across the country. The uh, subjects that are studied, the subjects that are popular, the, um, <clears throat> the way uh, subjects in the humanities and in the social sciences are taught <clears throat> uh, have gone much more sharply in a direction they were already going in those days. <clears throat> And um, <clears throat> one of the, some, some of the difference is very clear numerically. When I, it tells you a story. When I arrived at Yale, the uh, number one major in Yale College was history. Hmm. And the number two was English. And I think, you know, that tells you a lot about what kind of a place it really is. Mm -hmm. Because <clears throat> it means that... <clears throat> a very large percentage of the student body you can count on to have read many of the same books, to have considered some of the same experience, uh, and so on. So there was a, a considerable piece of common culture, and it was not despicable common culture. Right. These were serious books that had been studied for centuries in many cases, and, uh, and the... <coughs> The approach to them was still, I would have said, deferential and respectful to the great writers, to the great subjects, uh, and to the, the, the body of knowledge that had been thought to be uh, the, the, the starting point for educated people. That hadn't really changed an enormous amount. So traditional liberal education. Traditional liberal yeah. education, and, and a very good one because the faculty in my opinion, everybody's opinion in those days, was really quite extraordinary. And everybody seemed 
there must have been exceptions, but everybody seemed to be committed to the value of what they were up to, the notion that what they were doing was very inherently worthwhile, and the, the morale <clears throat> of everybody was that. And, you know, I, I mean, one of the things I'm struck by is nobody seemed to be worried about convincing anybody that they should be studying this subject. Whereas people are seem to me constantly aware of what do we have to do, sure. not just in these fields, by the way, in all fields. Uh, what do we have to do to interest students in this kind of stuff? And it reflects the fact that, in a way, the university doesn't really know what it's doing anymore. I assume history and English are no longer the two largest. They are not. Majors. Some, some of the social sciences, I think probably, I don't know that I'm dead right on this, but I would have expected the trio of economics, psychology, and um, Sociology. Sociology. and political science. political science. Because a lot of, a lot of Yaleys know they're going to go to law school, right. so political science uh, is part of it. Uh, they, I'm, I would guess, I can't be sure, but I would guess they would be the top three. In any case, they're the ones who seem to be the most uh, upfront. <clears throat> now, part of that has to do with a lot of things that have nothing to do with the uh, educational thinking of the university, uh, but, but uh, I think some of it does. Uh, it seems to me that the trouble that the humanities are in is a largely a, a self-created illness. <clears throat> For the longest time, the uh, faculties have pursued the interests they learned about in graduate school and these are not the interests, by and large, shared by innocents who come to us from the best high schools in America. Um, they just don't—they don't care about most of those things. And to the degree, you know, now obviously I reflect an older way of looking at things, and maybe that's the whole story. But the—the the issues in even in courses like history, but which have been turned into forms of social science in many right. cases, but also in a kind of an advocacy mode. The notion that somehow the studying politics, society, it's, we all know what the answers are. Right. The only question is to ask what's the most effective way to move society towards where we enlightened ones know. Now, in my day, I, it could be that all, all the faculty w agreed about all these things, but they didn't talk about that. <clears throat> they talked about the books they read right. and the subjects they studied and the different points of view that were held by different people and why, how one makes judgments among them. And I, we are all human and we all have our preferences. No doubt we said why the way I look at the world is particularly attractive but we didn't feel that it was proper for us to try to convince them to do it. And we didn't think that it was in any way proper not to give the contrary and other points of view, but and to indicate what were the strengths and weaknesses of them. I, uh, my feeling, and mostly I learned this from students who tell me about it. That's because I don't hear my colleagues very much. <clears throat> and that's just not the way it's done. It's as I say, the, the thing that stuns me the most is everybody knows what the answers are, and you just have to work your way towards them. And that's your colleagues, yeah. And yeah. the students, do you think they're fairly similar? Or? This is the amazing thing. I have lived, I think, 
in a personal bubble. <laughs> I find the students I teach today, I can't tell the difference between them and the students I taught 45 years ago. And I think there's a reason for it. <clears throat> when you're around that long, people get to know what the common story is about you. Some part of that is factual. They'll tell you what the work is like, what the requirements are like, what the demands are like. And <clears throat> of course, they know from the syllabus what the, the, sh the subject is going to be about. And on top of that, the students give you, if they're telling somebody about their course, uh, their own personal view of it. But the first thing that happens is nobody is going to take a course in Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War taught by me and be surprised by what he runs into. So I, I have the feeling I'm getting the same students because I'm attracting the same kind of students. Self-selection, I suppose, yeah. And so I, I really don't know the difference. But were you a master? Were you a master? I was a master of a college. So you did deal with. A whole oh, range I know what the students. rest of the universe is like. Yeah. But in my class, the, right. when when this class selects itself, right. then it, I can't tell the difference. But as master of a college, and you were also a senior administrator, dean or provost. I was I dean remember, of the dean, college. Dean yeah. of the college. I mean, do you have the sense? Some people complain, for example, and I myself am sort of not certain what to think of this. The students know much less when they come to college when they're 17 than they did mm -hmm. 30, 40 years ago. The part of me thinks, I don't know, they never really knew much when they were 17. And it's the, if there's been a change, it's the faculty that's changed in the way they teach, not the students that, in their preparation. I, but it could be either. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I have no reason to believe. I, I, it could be true, but I don't know that it's true, that the students are any more ignorant than they were before. Uh, uh, or particularly different in any significant way. The students I teach. But now, when I ran into students in my other capacities, I really wouldn't know because the kinds of issues that come up have nothing to do with that. Right. So uh, uh, that's what I say. I've been living in a bubble. I've been living in the, the bubble of Yale 1969 no, all no. these years. Well, you created the bubble by having an excellent <laughs> class and attracting... Great students. I mean, liberal education is supposed to be a bubble in a way, isn't it? I mean, separated from the rest of society and cushioned from the. Yeah, but I, 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 it is. It, they, as you know, you know, the students are asked to uh, write uh, uh, evaluations of their courses and teachers each semester, and most of them do, and I read them avidly. And <clears throat> what I find that's very interesting is when they when they want to say, you know, something nice, uh, it, it's, it, the, any, the personal stuff is not in, important. It's what they say about how the course works, what it does, how it's structured, what is required of them, and so on. And you get what I so often get to think, I never had a course like this, which wasn't just, it's wonderful, but I, I never had a course that had this structure. Hmm. that had this set of expectations that was conducted in the way that this one is. And that tells me that, you know, what, I mean, one of the things that, well, let me just say a word about that so you get some idea what yeah, they're yeah, talking give us about. An example, yeah. <clears throat> so I, I will, this is a seminar we're talking about. A lecture is a lecture. I just give a lecture. <laughs> but <clears throat> in the seminar, there'll be something between 15 and 20 students in the seminar. 
the entire class has a very specific reading assignment that it has to do for that day. And it includes many, many uh, original sources and secondary sources to get at the arguments and so on and so forth. On any particular day, there might be as many as four students who have been chosen that day to have written a paper on a particular topic, about five typewritten pages, which they distribute a week in advance so that the class has read their papers as well. <clears throat> then <clears throat> when we start, I begin to question the people who have delivered the papers and ask them to answer the, I pull a schutz on them and uh, have them uh, answer the questions. And we then allow the conversation to take its course because then I will recognize people who want to comment on them. And, and soon, if, if things go well, you've got yourself a conversation, sometimes a debate, uh, and that kind of a thing. And in the course of that exercise, if we do it right, there is no way the students can fail to know the range of opinions, interpretations that are available and what arguments might be adduced for them. But better yet, they get attached to them by chance and now they have to defend themselves. Mm. So I might say one of the things I think is good about that method is of all the things I was surprised by in meeting these very, very bright students I've had a chance to teach at Yale, I was surprised to discover, everybody complains about students writing. Most of the students can write very well, is the, what I find. You can help them, but they mostly, they didn't get there without being able to write well. But what I've found was they don't talk well. Hmm. I mean, they, they are not skilled at a serious conversation and how to get the most of it. They've had no practice at it. And so this is practice. Hmm. That's fascinating. And they... And they, they know, and because I'm engaged, it's never going to go off on, on the moon and it's never going to be anything but what I want it to be. Right. And that means they have to talk on the level I want them to talk at. So if it has to be elevated, it is by virtue of that experience. So um, it's that kind of thing that uh, I don't know how widespread that ever was. Uh, but... Uh, the students like that kind that of thing. That sounds like a great seminar. To, wish I wish I had been in that seminar. And your lectures, just let's close with the, they're online and uh, they're they're fantastically popular. They were a popular lecturer and uh, renowned lecturer at Yale and they've been very popular online. Uh, any advice to people watching who might be thinking of becoming professors? How do you give a good lecture? Well, first thing is talk about something that interests you. Yeah, that's good. That is good advice. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard to disguise the lack of interest. <laughs> and secondly, I think you should be aware that it is debate, controversy, arguments that catch the attention of most intelligent people when they are at a subject that's new to them. And so don't ever just lay down the law and tell them this is how it was. <clears throat> you need to help, to, to help them see how you get at two things. One is deciding what's worth talking about. And secondly, how you can go about trying to make up your mind about what's important about that. And somehow in your lectures, 
you want to be constantly indicating to them. These are things that people argue about. And here's why they do. And here's what some say. And here's what some others say. And here's why maybe you'd like to think of this point of view. But the point is, I think it's got to be the way things really are when you're interested in something. You need to know what there is to be concerned about and you need to know what the possibilities are, and you need to have some idea of the virtues of this and the virtues of that. If you're doing that, it's hard to defeat education entirely. Oh, that's great. And so I think and that's a good, it's a good note to, to end on, and I, I think in this conversation people might have gotten a sense of why you were one of the great teachers of the American Academy in the last half century. And so, Don, thanks so much for taking the time Thank today, you. and thank you for joining us on Conversations.